we as designers are really responsible for the well-being of future generations. And the reason we are suggesting this is that it encourages long-term thinking. So rather than just thinking about an exporter or how can I quickly make a lot of money with this quick idea or app or product, thinking about, okay, what does this mean for future generations? That's Dr. Martin Tomic. Martin is a professor in interaction design at the University of Sydney's School of Architecture, Design and Planning, where he teaches design, creativity and innovation, and also leads the Urban Interfaces Research Group. He's also the lead author of Design, Think, Make, Break, Repeat, a popular handbook of design methods. In this episode, we shift the focus away from human-centered design into life-centered design. Martin shares real-life examples of how human centricity is not always good for humans and for the planet, and how designers can start to make their work more life-centric, including how to create non-human personas. Martin will also be giving away two copies of his book, Design, Think, Make, Break, Repeat. Let's jump in. This is the Design Feeling Podcast with your host, Nirish Shakya. Hi, I'm Nirish Shakya and I'm a designer, educator and the host of my new podcast, Design Feeling. Most of the time, you'll probably find me helping organizations put their customers first. Or you might find me teaching design thinking and creative innovation. But... I'm on a slightly different quest here to explore the human behind the designer, who you are, what drives you, what frustrates you, and why, and ultimately how you can bring more impact and meaning into your work. On this podcast, my expert guests and I will be uncovering ways to increase your self-awareness, creative confidence, and meaning. Martin Tomic. Welcome to Design Feeling. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here and I really look forward to our chat. Awesome. So Martin, what is your most favorite childhood memory that comes to mind when I ask you that question? Uh, It's probably uh, the arrival of spring, I have to say. Uh, So I grew up on a farm in Austria, in the Austrian pre-Alps. My parents had a dairy uh, farm and... I remember that moment when, because we had quite a lot of snow back in the day. I think it's different now. But we had long winters, long cold winters and a lot of snow. And I remember the moment when you realize it's like that first spring day and you go out and I guess when you're young, you have more time to, to spend to spend spend time in, in nature and sit down in the grass and like connect with, uh, with nature. And I remember that moment when, when all the snow melted and the flowers started to bloom and you could hear the birds. And you, you, it, it sort of, I guess it, it, it was the beginning of uh, spring and, 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 and then followed by summer. So it was like a, it is a great moment in a way. I can definitely, in my mind, I'm visualizing rolling hills, melting snow, greenery, flowers. That's a beautiful memory, actually. Does that have anything to do with what you do now? Is there any uh, link? Maybe in a very indirect way, like I wouldn't consciously be able to point out that link, but maybe because I grew up on a farm and as you say, my parents bought that farm. They were entrepreneurial farmers in a way, (laughs) rather than coming out of a generation of farmers. And because I grew up on a farm, so it really shaped my early years and then my life, maybe I had a, I feel like I had a very strong connection to nature and animals because we had a lot of animals and if you always have to look after animals, you, you I remember rescuing animals. Like we had a little chicken that fell into a bucket of water and would have drowned if I wouldn't have found it and I took it inside. And so you you build a very strong connection in a way to nature that that you wouldn't have if you grew up in a city. And and so I think like I was always, I was always very conscious about uh, the environment and and what we call now sustainability, I guess. And so maybe that has shaped some of my thinking um, around some of the topics I'm working on now. And one of the, the most important topics that you are currently working on now is life-centered design. And I would love to know more about, well, first of all, how did you even get into design? 
So I always was, I was also interested in design. I guess even when I was young, I don't know, it might have been when I was 13, 14, I started designing the labels of the yogurt that we produced and sold. Or enough labels, for example, I remember doing that, some of those. I somehow then ended up going more into a technical direction. I went to a secondary school that, fo- that focused on IT, information technology. And so I, I learned how to program and how to like basics about electronics, et cetera. And at the same time, so I guess innovated enabled me to then build software and design software. So I got into that relatively early. And I was developing the software that we then used to manage our farm and the product, the products that we sold to shops. It was an organic farm, so we had our own sort of distribution network. And so in a way, that was, it's interesting now looking back because at the time there was no human-centered design or use experience design, but that's what I was doing, right? And so when it was time for me to go to university, I was, I was still really interested in graphic design. So I looked at, I went to but there have been days of three different universities. So I started in Vienna and all in Vienna, there have been day of the universities is all on the same day. And so I went to three different universities to look at three different programs. And that was graphic design at the University of Applied Arts. I looked at studying business at the, the Vienna Business School. And I looked at studying informatics at the Vienna University of Technology, which is what I chose in the end because it seemed like the broadest degree in a way with giving me many options. Like I was a five-year degree at the time and I, I learned that I could specialize on the societal impact of technology in the later, in the later part of the degree. And I was also able to still take electives from graphic design, from architecture, from business, which is what I did. And so it was a really good foundation. That's how I ended up in design, I guess. Yeah. Well, first of all, what is life-centered design and how is it different to what we normally do, which is human-centered design. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that happened for me, I guess, between going to university and starting to work on life-centered design. So I I also completed a PhD. I was very much focused on designing, understanding how we can design the interactions between people and technologies. And I guess as I was, as a, as, while I was a student, I got attracted to this field of, at the time we called it interface design and usability engineering. I got attracted to that because I was really interested in helping improve the lives of people and doing that by designing better technologies, better software products, designing better ways for people to make use of those products. And I I think a lot of us that are not doing human-centered design or UX design ended up in, in, in this field because of similar motivations. We wanted to help people out, but what... I realized for the last few years is that, so if we look at the business in the business environment and industry that human-centered design, yes, human-centered design has been very successful, which is great. It's great for our field. It's great for my students. There are a lot of jobs out there now, a lot of businesses investing in human-centered design, but there are more and more examples where human-centered design has been used in a way that has led to negative outcomes for for people, for societies, for communities, and for the planet in some ways. And so that's when I that's the reason why I started looking at alternative methodologies and studying what looking at what other methodologies are out there and studying how we could shift, investigating how we can shift uh, or encourage a shift from human centered nest to life centered design or life centered design as an approach to innovation. Mm-hmm. So Martin, you mentioned there something around how human-centered design has had negative impact. Could you give us an example of that? Yeah, so I think a great example is the in the idea of infinite scroll. So actually the, the founder, the inventor of infinite scroll, Asa Raskin, actually later regretted that he came up with this idea, <laughs> realizing how detrimental it was for the users of digital applications. So, of course, from a infinite scroll is that you keep serving the user more and more information. And in the way, you, you draw them in, which is great for business. It's great for social media platforms. You keep your users for longer. You can design your algorithms so you understand what they like, what they look at, so that you can 
continuously change the feed in a way and it keeps scrolling and scrolling and get more and more information served. But of course, that also encourages, unfortunately, addictive behavior. And so that's not very, now we know that's not very good for the mental health of for people's mental health. And so actually, ASA realizing that then later founded the Center for Humane Technology, I think it's called, and, and commented actually on the fact that he realized that designing things that are, that are intended to be good for the user actually end up maybe being detrimental for them. And so that's one of the examples. Another example is a startup called Yule. It's a, it's a great article on a great article online published by the Faust Company magazine documenting the startup. So it, apparently the story goes that the two founders started human centered design at Stanford University. And in the final project, they were looking at the stigma of smoking or stigmas around smoking and that they were using human centered design or design thinking to find ways to eliminate that stigma and to make smoking cool again. <laughs> and they created a business around that called Yule and very successful, got investors. And unfortunately, so the way they targeted it, and I guess they deliberately used advertising materials that made smoking very attractive to young people and actually increased smoking in young people. So they developed this like colorful vaping products. Um, so those are two examples. I think they're very stark examples, of course. But I think two good examples of how human-centered design can lead to negative outcomes. Something that, that I find interesting in those examples is the first example you gave around infinite scrolling. So it seems like the original intention of that was to increase ease of use, which is the user would not have to wait for content to load or have to click a button or a link to go to the next page. It just you can just, you know easily just keep scrolling and the content just keeps on loading. So the original intention seems to be positive in a way that we're trying to make lives easier for the user. Whereas in the second example, it starts off with a not so good intention in terms of you that you probably don't want to get people addicted to smoking, whether it's vape or whatever. But even then you start off with that, the bad intention of getting people using these products. So where does um, intentionality fit in here, the original intention? And then how do we even, for example, like I'm sure a lot of designers start off with the, a good intention of building products that they think are good for humans and then subsequently to the world. And it was on, it's only when later that all these unintended consequences start to pop up in the future. So where, where does our responsibility lie in the present moment when we're designing something that we don't know what is going to cause later in the future? Yeah, I think you're right in that those are two interesting examples because in the first example, they were, it was well-intended. And often that's what we do as designers. We have well-intended ideas and we do well-intended things. And it was, it was the unintended consequence that the designers hadn't foreseen. And so I think for us as designers, we have a responsibility to think harder about what those har unintended consequences might be. And there, in that case with Infinite Scroll, it only unfortunately became apparent when it was almost too late in a way because it's not everywhere. Again, it's an extreme example, but unintended consequences are almost in everything we do. Right? So every design decision we make encourages certain behavior or actions and that might, those might have unintended consequences. In the second example, I guess you could argue that it wasn't an unintended consequence. There's an unintended consequence in that more young people get addicted to smoking and that causes health issues um, further down the track. But you could argue that the, the founders knew that, they were aware of that, but they sort of mm -hmm. still went ahead with it because it was a good business idea. But the problem there was rather a lack of diverse viewpoints or diverse perspectives. So if they would have maybe brought other people along as part of the team and maybe looked at all the different perspectives and the different potential issues around the product and the campaign, the way they campaign the products, they might have realized that there were potential negative consequences that, that, that would actually become detrimental to the company. So the company was actually fined. Um, it was a court case and they had to pay a, a, a high fine because of the way they had promoted their smoking products. So... Martin, let's take our mind back to when AZ Ruskin invented the Infinite Scroll. And in hindsight, what could they have done 
at that moment in time to be more aware of some of the unintended consequences that particular invention or product might bring in in, in the future. Yeah, so we we have a, there are a number of tools and methods available that we can use to map out the unintended consequences. They're, of course, they take time. So I think that's one of the challenges that we make decisions very quickly and we have to work towards deadlines and timelines and budgets, etc. But for example, one of the methods that we also included in our book, which is called Design, Think, Make, Break, Repeat, it's a collection of 80 methods. And in its second edition, it has a strong focus also on life-centered design. Yeah, so one of the methods that con- was contributed actually by colleagues from Queensland University of Technology here in Australia is called the Ripple Impact Canvas. It's a very simple canvas that comes along with a little exercise and some steps around how to how to identify and map out what they call the direct and indirect impacts, potential impacts that a design intervention might have. And so you start with the design intervention in the center and then you work yourself your way outwards to think about the potential ripples and the impacts. It's, it can be a bit difficult if you have blank cameras, but it can be, for example, it can be combined with another method that's also in the book called systems mapping. And I think systems mapping is actually a really important method when we talk about life-centered design because life-centered design, part of that, the, the underlying idea behind life or motivation behind life-centered design is that we, the world is operating in a, as a very complex system, like it's a network, it's a very complex network. And so systems mapping, we can use to understand what that network looks like, in particular in relation to a designed object or product or artifact application that we're working on. And so in the infinite scroll example, that might have involved, for example, mapping out the different the different applications that might be using infinite scroll and how it might be used in the different applications, what the two different stakeholders are behind the applications, what the motivations are, etc. So I'm not saying it could have been predicted that it would be misused in a way or abused by social media platforms, because that's not necessarily how it was invented right at the beginning. It's just as I say, it was trying to make it easier for users so they don't have to click buttons, they can just keep scrolling. Uh, but if we are engaging in these kinds of methods as designers, we develop more of a sensibility to what potential issues might be and an awareness about those issues so we can raise those potentially earlier. Yeah. And I guess not just the psychological issues in terms of things like addiction and so on, but also environmental issues, a lot of that which you've raised in a lot of your writing as well. I just read somewhere that every Google search costs the same amount of energy that it takes to light an LED bulb for three minutes. As you can imagine, all the scrolls, every image, every video that is loaded every time you scroll must cost like a similar amount of energy. Yeah, and it's it's a big problem in terms of digital consumption more widely. Apparently, there are some studies that suggested that the carbon emissions from associated with digital consumption are actually higher than those associated with aviation. So all of air travel combined. And that's, that was done before the pandemic, those studies. So compared to the building industry, for example, it's still relatively small. I think it's around the 3.6% of all of the carbon emissions, but it's growing really rapidly. That's the problem that we see this massive increase in, in the internet usage and also the usage of digital applications in countries around the world. And so there's a whole movement around that area as well, referred to as sustainable web design. So the call for considering using smaller images, if possible, using sustainable server farms, for example, and also doing things like not having an offline feature for video, for example. It's because video consumption, of course, is one of the bigger contributors when it comes to carbon emissions, because it's quite energy, energy intensive and data intensive. And often you're on websites where you can see video commercials on the side that's just starting to play, for example, or even the autoplay feature on YouTube. Or a lot of people are listening to music on YouTube. They're not actually watching the video scene. They're just listening to music, but not realizing how much energy that's consuming um, and all the carbon emissions associated with that. 
It's funny you mentioned that because even us recording this podcast is costing energy. And yeah. even the people listening to the podcast is also causing an impact. Um, well, podcasts on- is better than watching TV or, or YouTube, I guess, <laughs> and, and I should say. So True. actually, we should encourage your listeners to, to listen more <laughs> to your podcast. But it's interesting to say that, for example, what did they say when on Zoom? Because, of course, it was all during the pandemic where more and more people started using Zoom. So we weren't flying, which was great. But then Zoom is using also a lot of energy. And I think there was a study that found that turning off your video on Zoom saves, I think it was around 98% of carbon emissions compared to just having wow. audio, which I think <laughs> when, so we, when we te- taught, taught our students during the pandemic years, a lot of students just turned off the video and it was a big, it was always a big uh, discussion amongst the educators. And you know, do we force our students to turn on the video? But some of them might not have, like, I know, they might not have good enough internet connection, or they might be in a space where they want to share that share the background, or they might have even a whole family maybe doing things behind them in the background as well, or their flatmates, etc. And I was like using the excuse or telling my students, at least you're saving the environment by turning off your video. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> sure, I mean, that's the reason why they do it. <laughs> when I teach in a UX online, one of the, I have a slide house rules is like yeah, if you're comfortable please turn on your videos i do encourage my students to turn on the videos to get that more of an interactive feel but maybe i should start encouraging them to keep the videos off that's see the, the dude is not realizing necessarily <laughs> about the impact and it's it we do that because it's not visible we don't see what the impact is as a user mm-hmm. we don't see that and again i think that's a responsibility for us as designers now again shifting the conversation with the user to the ux designer to be more mindful about A, how these technologies are designed in the first place, and B, how we can also communicate some of that information to the user, potentially. Mm. I wrote an article, an online article, a few months ago, where I argued for having a a planetary health star rating for apps. <laughs> so here in Australia, we have a health star rating for fruit. I think it's an Australian New Zealand system. And so... It's, a, it's an opt-in system. Manufacturers of produce don't have to use it, but consumers like it, right? So when you buy your cereal package, for example, it might say you know, four out of five stars, health star rating, or so it's all, you can look at your chocolate bars or like whatever you buy, and you can make a decision based on the star rating. And the argument I made was that maybe we need something similar for apps so that as I download an app from the app store, it actually tells me what the health star rating, the planetary health star rating is. Mm. And that star rating might be calculated based on the server farms they're using, based on how much energy they, the, the operation of the app is using. So things like autoplay would be really bad for the rating, right? So it would encourage the developers of those apps not to have those, include those features. But it could also even include things like ethical considerations, like whether there was a user, whether there's use of modern slavery, for example, mm. in the, um, in the, involved in some way in the making of the product. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the first step is awareness, right? Helping raise awareness of what you're using and what impact it has. And then the choice is there for the consumer to either whether continue to use it or stop using it. But I think awareness seems to be one of the key challenges for us at the moment as an industry. So one of the things that I find fascinating about, we know a lot of the work that you're currently doing is around reframing the way we see our design decisions in terms of, for example, like I said, maybe uh, discourage people from turning on the videos. And that's something that, that's relevant to me because I used to work for a streaming TV company here in the UK. And our goal as designers was to always make sure that people are watching TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And we were basically pushing really hard to get HD, full HD content uh, on the platform. But now what you're saying is maybe I should have gone the other way in terms of encouraging users to scale down their resolution. Now, if I had, as a designer, if I had proposed that idea to my business stakeholders, they probably would have laughed at me. (laughs) Probably, but uh, I I hope two things. I think there are ways of proposing these kinds of ideas so that don't become like maybe a feature that you could almost, the business could almost sell. The other, my other response would be that I feel that so I don't know how many years ago that was, but I feel that things are also shifting. And that we're now real that businesses are now realizing that consumers are becoming more aware of, of the impact on the environment and about sustainable practices and that they're actually turning towards businesses 
that have a that are more sustainable and more transparent about their sustainable impact. And so I'm hoping that we will see an increasing shift over the next few years where more of my business will turn towards implementing these kinds of solutions. Really, maybe I'll give you two examples. So to the example of the HD versus ASD streaming, you could give that choice to the user, right? So the user might be able to choose to just watch an SD and, and, and reduce carbon emissions. So giving the user that choice rather than making the decision on behalf of the user. Of course, a lot of people might still want to have the HD experience and that's fine. The other, the other example, which is a really nice example, is actually Amazon's, in Amazon's shipping process, when you check out your products, they actually give you a choice whether you want to have each, if you're ordering multiple items, whether you want to have all of the items, but then you want to have each of the items delivered as soon as possible, or whether you're happy to wait for a few days and have them comp- arrive combined in the package. And that is a design decision, right? That is something that designers have designed and created as an interface to give the customer the choice, but it has a direct impact on the environment. In that case, of course, the emissions associated with delivering the, the package, but also the packaging material itself, et cetera. Yeah. And I guess it's also, you know, cost saving for the business as well to have to do less deliveries as well. So maybe it's not just a something that's good for the environment, but also maybe helps the business as well, reduce costs. Yeah, and that's how I think how the designers could make a difference if we are able to connect those decisions and ideas about driving positive change with potential benefits for business. I guess in a way, if you stream an SD, that's also a cost benefit, right? You're making better use of your existing server infrastructure and Mm. you can serve more users on the same infrastructure. Yeah. You could almost incentivize and, um, it. For a while, I don't know if that's still the case. For a while on iTunes, you paid less for SD shows. So you download a show, you could buy a show, and you could mm-hmm. decide to pay less and get an SD quality, which mm-hmm. I guess takes up less of their resources as yeah. well. So that's why they're selling it at less, yeah. a lower cost. Yeah. And that, that probably makes more sense from a user's perspective because, for example, if I'm paying let's say, I don't know, 10 pounds a month for my Netflix subscription, I would probably want to get the best out of it in terms of squeeze every value out of it and watch everything in Ultra HD, right, 4K. Mm. Whereas if I can get something in return for watching something in a standard definition or lower resolution, there's more incentive for me as a user to use that. Absolutely. And I, I always say when I talk about these topics that you can never blame the user, right? Because the, as the, or the customer, because they either are not aware of it, like the example with turning on your Zoom video, or they don't have a choice, like the example with streaming in HD on Netflix. And so it is really the responsibility of the designers to make those decisions and to advocate for those decisions within the business or the organizations they're working for. And it's actually interesting. The idea of the idea of sustainability being a responsibility of the customer is actually something that was fabricated by big corporations. So BP actually, British Petroleum, popularized this idea of the carbon footprint in order to distract from their own dirty business and their own impact on the environment. So they were saying they actually were running advertising campaigns, say, suggesting to customers to, to do their thing in order to reduce the carbon footprint. And they're actually the first ones to even develop and publish a carbon footprint calculator. And it's a really clever marketing strategy <laughs> <laughs> because they're distracting from their own wrongdoing and bad mm. practices and putting, they're shifting their responsibility to the user and customer. And uh, they're pointing at us and going, you are doing the wrong things. It's not our problem <laughs> that you're, you're using all this petrol. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're buying all these things. So it's really, therefore, yes, we can do, we can do our share and we should be doing our share, of course. But as designers, we have much more power to drive positive change because the, the things we design and the interactions, interactions of products amplified by the thousands because of the many people that end up using those products or interacting with our applications. One thing that I saw in one of your recent articles you wrote was a famous diagram that was, uh, it was, done by IDEO. It was popularized by IDEO. I don't know if they actually came up with it, but it was popularized by them. Where you have three circles, the circle of desirability, the circle of feasibility, and the circle of viability coming together. And, you know, 
we've always used these, those three circles to design our products. And I've always tended to start with desirability first, like human desirability. And then now you have added a fourth circle, the circle of responsibility and sustainability. Uh, could you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the original diagram. Is it? It's a. It's a great diagram, right? It makes so much sense, and so that's I think why it became so popular and and has been used so widely, both in education, I think, and also in 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 practice. It makes sense that in order to come up with an innovation that is successful, you have to address all those three perspectives. So the new diagram, we are the new model that we're suggesting, is based on our research on life-centered design where we see life-centered design as an approach to responsible innovation, what we call responsible innovation. And so we are suggesting that we add this fourth perspective around environmental and ethical values in order to capture the responsibility perspective. That means we have the, the human values, the desirability, the technology perspective, the feasibility, and the business perspective in terms of viability complemented by what is our responsibility or what is responsible to do in an environmental and ethical sense. There's some people that have suggested, isn't it all about responsibility? You know, shouldn't that be part of technology and part of human values? But we feel it's really important to bring it out as a separate perspective in order to draw the attention to it and to really emphasize that we have to start considering this perspective. And yes, you can have an innovation without it, but it's not going to be a responsible innovation. And I would also argue that in the very near future, it won't be a successful innovation because customers will be looking for this responsibility perspective. And we are also are we also suggesting that designers actually ideally positioned to be the custodians of this new perspective. So in a similar way, how we are arguing for the user or speaking up on behalf of the user in the design process, we can use the same tools and methods and also our skills in terms of bringing people together synthesizing data, we can use those skills and abilities to also represent the environmental and ethical perspectives. That's super fascinating because I guess before human-centered design became a, a mainstream practice, technology was not really about humans, right? Computers were just there to I don't know, do calculations or whatever, but I guess designers back then didn't really think about, okay, how do we make this usable or user-friendly to the general populace? And now what you're saying is that we need to go beyond that in terms of how do we bring in these uh, non-human stakeholders into the picture and give them a voice as well, just like we gave all humans a voice back in the 70s and 80s. Now, how do we start giving non-human stakeholders a voice in the design process? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of a lot of us will probably remember the days before human-centered design and before we had considered the human values and how how badly designed in particular software products, but many products were at the time. And maybe at the time it was just enough to have technology and the business perspective. And you can develop something and market it and people buy it. But then people started demanding for better usability and better experiences. And in a way that drove the success of human-centered design, because Company, companies realized that and started to turn to design in order to help them to design better experiences and deliver better experiences. And maybe it, it would be interesting to go back in time and, and be part of those initial conversations, like the conversation we have here today now. <laughs> back then, I guess we didn't have podcasts, so it's not recorded. But, <laughs> and listening to some of those conversations, where I made the first designers started to suggest, oh, how about we talk to the user and we could capture the perspectives of the users and bring them into the design process. And it, it might have it probably sounded crazy at the time and probably had a lot of pushback for a long time. I remember at a time when there were still struggles and to actually advocate for this idea of, of human-centeredness and experience design. And I do believe that we are now at a point where we're seeing the same thing happening with the environmental and ethical values. And so that's really the planet as a bigger system, as an ecosystem. And that includes nature, yes, and 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 uh, non-human life, but it also includes considering, for example, communities that might not be represented, communities at the fringes that are affected in some way, but that aren't captured through a traditional human-centered design process. Mm. And I think that's a great segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is non-human personas. Now, 
this is not something I've come across very often in my career as a designer or even as a design educator. What are non-human personas and how do you create them? Yeah, so it's when we started thinking about life-centered design we and working on that second edition of our book, Design, Think, Make, Break, Repeat, we, we were looking for methods we could include in that second edition that would support life-centered design. And so one of our co-authors on that book, there's 11 of us on the second edition, had one of our co-authors had done uh, some work on animal personas as part of her PhD research. So she was doing some research on urban farming, like having, for example, your own like backyard chickens. And so she was doing some research on how, how, how people were engaging these kinds of urban farming practices. And this part of the process created animal personas for the chickens. And so partly based on that, we started developing this idea of non-human personas. And we then ran a small design research project with one of my colleagues, Joel Fredericks, and some of one of our research students here, where we also empirically tested that method. And it's essentially based on the human persona in terms of the basic structure of how it works. But of course, we can't go out and interview chickens or other animals or, or life forms, non-human life forms. Not yet. Um, <laughs> not yet, no. <laughs> might be able to do that one night. And it can also be tricky to, or dangerous even to go and observe them, right? Yes, we could observe them in the natural environment, but we might actually negatively interfere with their natural environment and therefore maybe damage their natural ecosystem. And so there, what we're suggesting is that we can either therefore draw on secondary literature to have a better understanding by reading reports. So for example, our research project here focused on urban parklets and how we can design parklets, which are small urban interventions where you might have something like a charging station and a bench to sit down and there's some light. How we could des design that for both human users and non-human users and specifically focus on possums which are native animals and native species that is quite common here in urban locations in, in, in uh, Australia. And so you can either, we can either collect information from second, from reports, the secondary data, or again, using our skills as designers, we could go out and interview specialists, biologists, people working with these life forms or having a deeper understanding and collecting that data and then bringing back our representing that data, synthesizing that data in the form of non-human personas. We actually developed a whole framework around this, which we call Middle Art, a Middle Art Design Framework. It's based on one of my colleagues' PhD research with the idea that we bring stakeholders from the bottom, like community groups, for example, together with stakeholders from the top, like the government that might be responsible for regulations. And then we can interview representatives from those groups in order to form a fuller picture of that non-human persona and then capture that in form of a, an actual non-human persona artifact that we can then keep using in our design process. Now, a question for me as a designer is, for example, with human personas, we capture their needs and goals and jobs to be done, which if we were to help them meet, will in turn help the business. Now, how does that work with non-human personas and capturing their needs and goals? Do they have to directly then bend for the business? Or is it a totally different way to look at these personas in terms of it's not just about the business, but it's about something else? We have a template that comes with our method, which is also available for free on our companion website. And I'm sure we can include the link in the notes for Absolutely. listeners. It's based on the template, but we have, we have slightly different categories. So for example, if I remember this correctly, now we have something like their, the habitat, information about the habitat. So where the species would normally live in a natural environment and what makes it environment special. We have things like what the food sources are, because it might be important for particular design interventions and information such as what particular stresses are. So what are things that would negatively affect them? What are some of the challenges, which I guess is what we call pain points in the human personas. A point that has been made in the research and in, in previous research and that we also adopted is that we are not, we're using a third person describing that non-human persona, which is different to human personas in a way where you want to have the first perspective, first person perspective. And we're doing that in order to, as a reminder that the description of that non-human persona is still based on a human understanding. It's still like looking 
at it through a human lens in a way. And how much is there a danger of bias towards, again, human needs, where we are basically trying to understand the needs of these non-human stakeholders just to benefit us as humans and not really benefit them? Yeah, I think that's a really dangerous aspect of, I guess, any persona, really, that you can bring bias in. And I guess you can do the same with human personas, that you can... Yep, that's also something we need to acknowledge that as designers, we always have this bias. So the way I would write up a human persona based on data that is collected, maybe if I give you the same data, you would write up a different persona because we all bring our own cultural framing and bias in a way to doing that synthesis. So the way what we're suggesting in order to overcome that bias is to have diverse teams that are working together in order to eliminate the bias as much as possible. It's always difficult, of course, to, or unintended, talking about unintended consequences, of course, there's a risk also that business, businesses might be misusing tools like non-human personas for their own benefits or own purposes. The first time I encountered this idea of designing for non-human was when we created an urban installation. So a lot of my research, especially the past decade, was around urban interaction design. So we designed an intervention where we turned and a city bin into a, a gamified experience. So in order to address the issue of littering in cities, when you play, when you put rubbish into the bin, essentially playing Tetris on the bin itself. So the bin was wrapped in an LED screen as a playful intervention. And we, we did an, a field study of that, that project uh, here on our university campus. And in order to measure actually, uh, would it reduce littering in an environment? And one morning when I was on my way to work, I got a distressed uh, phone call from the campus operations team saying that Ibises had attacked the bins and pulled out all the rubbish <laughs> from the bins. <laughs> so they were doing the opposite rather than putting stuff into the bin. They were, of course, <laughs> using their peaks to pull so, stuff out of the bins. <laughs> to our um, non-Australian listeners, Ibises are these um, birds that tend to basically eat from bins in Australia. <laughs> That's an example that maybe listeners might go, I'm not going to design a playful urban bin intervention. But I think a, a stakeholder, a non-human stakeholder that we all had to deal with in the last two years is the coronavirus. Mm. And so you could equally use the non-human persona in order to represent the coronavirus and also identify things like how does it operate where does it live how does it spread what are stresses mm. what are what does it want to do what how does it how does it connect with other other stakeholders and then looking at how that would affect your business or the products you're designing in your organization or the organizations you're working with this mm. is an idea actually that was published by originally by someone else uh, monica snell she wrote a great medium article about this topic and uh, we, we actually are part of a new group called the, uh, the Life Center Design Collective that we recently launched. So we are connected with some people across the world that are working in Life Center Design. And so we're trying to bring resources together that we each individual have been working on and make them available for the design community. That sounds super fascinating. So we will put again links to resources, including the Life Center Design Collective, if you're interested in checking it out and uh, maybe even joining it. So, Martin, one of the things that you mentioned is around how, as designers, we should think of ourselves as not just being hired by the client or even by the user, but as being hired by future generations. Now, this is something mind-blowing to me. I can't even picture this or understand this properly in my head in terms of what did you mean by being hired by future generations? Yeah, so... I think it was uh, Mike Montero who wrote in his book, Ruined by Design. He made a point about how when his design agency engages in design work, to make it very clear to the client that even for the hired by the client, they're really hired by the client to represent their users or customers. And so we are, what, we, what I'm suggesting is that, that we need to extend this framing to, to this notion that we as designers are really responsible for the well-being of future generations. And the reason we are suggesting this is that it encourages long-term thinking. 
So rather than just thinking about an exporter or how can I quickly make a lot of money with this quick idea or app or product, thinking about, okay, what does this mean for future generations? This is an idea that something that I've been thinking a long about for a while. Uh, there's a framework called cathedral thinking, which is something that I've used in the past in my own research and write some of my writings and also organizing a symposium a few years ago to celebrate our school's centenary. And so the idea of cathedral thinking is, is based on the notion that back in the, during the medieval times, when an architect would start designing the first plans for a cathedral, they would know that during that they wouldn't be alive by the time the cathedral would be finished, because it would take a cathedral hundred or more years to be actually built. And so they had to create those plans in a way so that they would they would continue, they would go beyond their own life in a way, and they would serve future generations. And the way the cathedral was built would serve future generations. It's also this idea of long-term thinking is also, if anyone is interested in learning more about this, I can highly recommend the book called The Good Ancestor by, I hope I pronounce this correctly, by Roman Kurtznarich. <laughs> and I think the subtitle is something like How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World. And one of the examples uh, he, he gives is this idea of the seventh generation principle which is something that First Nations people use. So he's drawing on the First Nation knowledge in, the, in America. And the seventh generation principle essentially is used in order by First Nations to uh, evaluate any decision they make. So any decision they make, they assess it in terms of like, how will, what does this mean for seven generations from now? So it's, and it's something that I think we've really not been very good at as designers to think about um, the long-term impact of our actions. And, and so we're we are trying, and that's also the new book we're working on that you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. We're trying to find ways for us to bring that into the day-to-day design practice. Mm, wow. That sounds like a pretty powerful shift in your mindset in terms of thinking more long-term. I can see that being done a lot in designers who, who are working in the futures and foresights studies. A lot of designers are designing for the short-term future and not for generations down the line. So for most of us designers who are working for, for next year or the two, two years' time, how do we think about the future generations when our goal is pretty much to how do we get people to click on that button next next year? Well, I mean, every every, com- every company organization would have or should have at least something like a 10-year strategy. So companies are already designed in a way to have that at least midterm thinking, it's not long-term thinking. And so there, I think that's where we as designers start getting more involved in what we also refer to as strategic design. So how using design methods in order to help Define the strategy, a company's organization strategy and pushing it in the, in, in the right, in a, in a particular direction, but it's the right direction, not can be discussed. And also using our skills in a way to, to influence what direction that strategy might go in, using our skills in order to drive and lead positive change within organizations. And that can be very subtle. And because I, I realized that this uh, could, might sound a bit overwhelming and people go, how do I do that? And where do I start? But it's about, for us, it's about making these 1% changes. The new book we're working on, which is addressing this, these kinds of topics, it's, I'm co-authoring that book together with Steve Fatty from Melt Studios. I'm very excited about that. He and I both gave Australia 2021 covering similar topics and we joined up to work on this book project. And so he talks about this 1% change. Like what can, what can be as designers to now as a 1% change that adds up over time? And I think it was one of your previous speakers in this podcast series. Maybe it was Ben who said something like, we underestimate how much we can do in 10 years, but we overestimate how much we can do in one year, but we underestimate how much we can tend to in 10 years. Yes. 10 ben years. Yeah. And so I think it's, uh, that's a really great quote. And. I think with that 1% change, if we do a 1% change over 10 years, that will have a huge impact. And 
for me, the way I guess I practice it myself, I guess to some extent I practice it in my organization, the university, trying to change or drive positive change, but it's also through education, teaching the next generation of designers. For me, that's also 1% change in a way. If I can I just give, I don't know, if I just think, change my students in one to think 1% differently. And if they start out going out and doing that work and they drive change or tell others about it or influence others to also drive that change, that mm-hmm. could have a huge amplifying impact over a 10-year period. Yeah, the power of thinking big but acting small. That's it, exactly, that's it, yeah. So when we try to design for the future, especially so far down the future, uh, there is so much uncertainty that we have to deal with and manage. And uncertainty comes with a lot of anxiety, both at a personal level and at an organizational level. What are some of your you know, biggest uh, tips when it comes to dealing with this anxiety, both at a personal level and also at an organizational level? I actually talk a lot about that I, when I talk to my students or run sessions around design, design thinking, I guess we still call it design thinking. For me, that's one of the great benefits of using design as a way of thinking, using design as a mindset that it gives us the ability to deal with uncertainty. I think designers are really great at dealing with uncertainty. I can see that also again in my environment, the university, I feel like being, being a trained designer and a design educator. I feel that gives me often the ability to feel comfortable with uncertainty by knowing, by, by knowing that there, there is a way out of that uncertainty. And by knowing that you can always, you can connect dots in different ways, or you can apply different kinds of methods in order to just try to get something out. And if it doesn't work, you go back and try something different. I think that's a lot about the design as a mindset um, that we we know we don't have to get it right the first time. Right? We can try a few things out. If it doesn't work, we go back and try something different. So the whole concept of failing fast, failing often, testing those risks early at a smaller scale seems to be the key here as designers. Yeah, I think that's a good way to deal with uncertainty. Yeah. And that's also true when it comes to business and product innovation more broadly. We're always dealing with lots of uncertainties. And the best way to to do that is by doing small, quick experiments. I think it was Edison, maybe, who said that the success depends on how many experiments you can fit into 24 hours. Something like that, the quote was. Mm-hmm. And that's because the more experiments you do, the more uncertainties you can eliminate. And the more you better you know where you're going. And so there's some great diagrams like the design, the squiggle. I think it's called the design squiggle, which mm-hmm. is this diagram that has a lot of messiness at the beginning, which is the, the, that's the area where we feel uncertain, we feel anxiety. And there are studies that go back decades where researchers found that when we feel stressed, when we feel anxious, what happens in our brain is that we're actually shutting down our creative thinking capabilities. And that's the wrong thing because when you're in this messiness, you need to think creatively. And so again, that's why design as a mindset and this idea of doing lots, just trusting this process of doing lots of experiments quickly can really help us to make sure our brain isn't shutting down because we feel anxious and stressed and that we are able to deal with those uncertainties. I spoke with uh, Kate Pincott, who is a design leader and a coach here based in the UK. And that was the first episode, no, sorry, there was the second episode of Design Feeling Podcast, where she talked about how she actually uses the, the lean loop methodology of build, measure, learn on herself. So she creates these little experiments that she can try out on, on her own life to see if that actually reduces some of the uncertainty and anxieties that, that might come with it. And I think that seems to be a key theme in terms of yeah, how do you reduce those anxieties by you know, conducting these you know, tiny experiments that will help you um, get more certainty and confidence as to what the, the future outcome might be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and often that can just be, because we talk about prototypes, right? But a prototype can be many things. It doesn't have to be a paper prototype or a Figma prototype. And there's this great course coming out of Stanford called Design Your Life. There's also a book called Design Your Life based on that course. 
And the, the facilitators of the instructors of that course used this idea of using, talk about this idea of using conversations as a prototype, which I really like. So any conversation we have with someone becomes a prototype. And so that's how you can prototype your life, right? <laughs> the conversation with someone about what you might do or you're thinking about doing, but it's tomorrow or next year or in 10 years time. And by talking about it, it becomes a prototype that you can test in a way. And I, I think it really changed, reading that really changed my, the way I th think about conversations. I think intuitively, I've always been doing that, but now I'm more conscious than maybe doing that, that mm. if I'm not quite sure about something, I try to have a conversation with someone and see how it feels. And now everything I do is like a conversation. And actually, I heard an interview that uh, Steve Jobs seems to have done that as well, that he would always like have, like if he was thinking about something, he would go to people at, at Apple and, and start a conversation about it. And it might be a completely different conversation the next time with, he, might, he might drop the idea. But it was for him also, I think, a way of, of testing out different ideas that in his head Love before that. they become product that. prototypes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hey, the conversation we're having right now could be a prototype that is. It's totally a prototype. <laughs> for me, it's a prototype for the book that Steve and I are working on. Every talk I give in a way is not a prototype because I'm testing out these ideas. I'm seeing how they resonate with the audience, what questions I get. And sometimes they say things, I guess, that don't seem to land. And then I know, okay, I've gone in the wrong direction and need to pull it back, maybe. <laughs> and sometimes yeah, and, the things and, that really land. Yeah. yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is part of the process to exactly. see where it takes you. And then you can always yeah. revert back and go some other direction. Martin, tell us about this book you're writing with Steve Beatty. So we don't have a working title yet for it. Um, we have a number of working titles <laughs> and we're still also we're talking to a potential publisher. So we don't have too many details about it yet. But the backstory was that Steve gave a talk at UX Australia 2021 about, about the contemporary practice of design and where design as a field might be heading and talking also about the responsibility of us designers that we have in order to address the big the big challenges of our time, like the climate crisis. At the same conference, I was giving a talk about non-human personas and other tools, UX tools for a post-pandemic world. And so we, we decided to combine <laughs> the thinking behind those two different talks to, to write a book for designers, specifically writing and talking to UX designers, because that's the domain in which both Steve and I are operating. But drawing on things like service design and systems design and life center design in order to, in order to capture tactics that designers can start using in their day to day practice in order to drive positive change within the organizations. And we see it, we want it to both be an optimistic account, like an optimistic account of the world, because there are a lot of books, including Mike Montero's Wind by Design that are that are very much about the, the doom and, and gloom and the end of the world. But we want it to be an optimistic account, a hopeful account, uh, something that people can actually use and start applying in order to affect change. And we also want it to be very bottom-up so that you don't need your boss to approve it. You don't need to wait for your company to make the first step, but that you as a designer, you can start implementing some of these simple tools whether it's systems mapping or non-human personas or any of the other design methods that will be including in the book in order to start bringing some of that long-term thinking um, and more diverse, diverse perspectives into, into the design work that we're all doing. Nice. I'll definitely look out for this book uh, once you've got that out, out uh, in the world. Okay. So Martin would like to give away two copies of his book, Design Think, make, break, repeat to two of our listeners. We'll have a think about how we can organize this. We know we'll probably put some more details in the show notes, but keep a lookout for that in your show notes in terms of how you can win a copy of um, Martin's book. Is this going to be a digital copy or a physical copy? We'll give away physical copies. Oh, a physical proper copies. book. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we can get the sign as well by the author. That should be possible. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, we can probably right. arrange that. Maybe not all 11 authors, because like I said, the 11 of us, the which, <laughs> but the main author, I'm sure you can organize that. But the fact that there are 11 authors, I think makes this also a really valuable resource and almost a transdisciplinary design methods book, because we have all these different perspectives coming together. Yeah. Awesome. So Martin, 
What's the one thing that you would tell your young younger self as a designer? Maybe to what I was we were just talking about this idea of keep prototyping different ideas and not being too worried about getting things wrong. Love it. And what's the one thing that pisses you off as a designer, as a professor, as an author, or as a human being? Um, that's a, it's a very strong word, something that pisses me off, something that, something that annoys me. I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's some people that talk about things that they don't know enough about, but they talk about it as if they are experts in it. And that's unfortunately often the case with design thinking because it's become so popular. And also it's people often go, Oh yeah, design. That's easy. Yeah. We know that. I've read an article about design thinking. So I'm an expert in it. Mm-hmm. And so that I find that frustrating sometimes. Mm. And imagine it's your last day on earth and someone came up to you with a tiny piece of paper and asked you, Martin, please write down your last few words and we will put it up on a massive billboard for the whole world to see. What would you write that down? What write down on the tiny piece of paper? I guess my first question would be, do we need another billboard? <laughs> <laughs> and do I want to contribute to having more billboards in the world? All right, let's scratch the billboard. Let's just have the <laughs> tiny the message. <laughs> I'm not sure I have done enough yet to earn that billboard space, to be honest. I feel maybe we should have this conversation again in 10 years' time. And hopefully, I'm hoping I would have had an impact that I can earn that billboard space. I feel... I might not have it yet. And so actually probably what I would like to do with that piece of paper is I'd probably, I'd like to get some, talking about diverse perspectives, try to get some other people together that represent diverse perspectives and put a message together that we share with the world. Well, that's like the first guest that I've interviewed that has not answered that question in a straightforward way. <laughs> but I'm going to take the- a, a design collaboration approach to it. <laughs> So we, we don't know what's going to come out of it, but I guess that's a design process, right? We never know what mm. comes out of it at the end of a design process. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for that, Martin. I'm going to just do a quick recap of our conversation. And we started off by talking about how as designers, we tend to make a lot of design decisions that might have unintended consequences in the future. We specifically used the example of the infinite scroll and how now it's causing so many problems in terms of getting people addicted to just constantly scrolling endlessly on different internet pages. We also talked about how we can bring in more intentionality into that practice by, for example, encouraging maybe users to turn off their Zoom videos so that they can save energy. And a lot of times, this is not the user's fault, although big corporations might have trained us to think that it is the user's responsibility. It is also the responsibility of the maker and the builder to actually make it easier for users to do, to do the right thing. And just as we started speaking up for the humans in the design process with human-centered design, what you're saying now is we it's time for us to start speaking of non-humans, speaking on behalf of non-humans in our processes and giving them that voice. And this is where a lot of the work that you've been doing around life-centered design comes into play, especially the whole concept of non-human personas, which I find super fascinating uh, and how you know we can start to build some of these artifacts using secondary data or even direct research with specialists who deal with those non-human personas, whether that be, for example, animals, plants, the environment. Uh, go and speak to these people who know more about this and collect that data from those people. And one of the ways you could eliminate the potential bias that can occur in these artifacts is to rely on diversity. Make sure that your teams are diverse enough to bring in different perspectives into these personas to make sure that all perspectives are catered for. And as designers, if you feel as if there's so much work here and where do I even start, start small. Make that 1% change that you can make today while still keeping the big vision in mind. How do we think big but act small? And when you're on this journey, things can seem really uncertain. And when things are 
uncertain, we tend to stop taking action because that's what we do, right? We either feel fight, flight, or freeze. But a way to manage that uncertainty is, and again, going back to our core mindset and principle as designers, which is to test small, test those small uncertainties and risks to increase your confidence as to what the outcome in the future might be. And yeah, even something as small as a conversation can be a prototype that you can learn from and test your ideas with. So really powerful topics there that we talked about today, Martin. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, your experience, your wisdom that you've collected along the way. I've learned loads and I'm sure like whoever's listening right now has done the same as well. Thank you again for having me and thank you for inviting to be part of this great podcast. And also thanks for allowing me to prototype some of my ideas together with you and with your listeners. Amazing. So Martin, if people want to find you online after this episode, how can they do that? I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Twitter, I do very short updates, usually around research and events we're doing. LinkedIn, I usually do more reflective pieces and also share some of the articles I'm writing. I'm usually trying these days to have a more accessible short article based on our research papers to make them available to a broader audience. And Instagram, I realized it's really, my Instagram is really a collection of book covers, skies here in Australia, and my dogs. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but so you keep your... if you're interested in any of those, you can follow me on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm assuming you keep your video videos to, the, to a minimum to reduce your footprint. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no videos, just pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure don't uh, send um, Martin, you know, massive videos or long emails. Make sure you keep it very short <laughs> and very thoughtful. But no, just kidding. Just yeah, reach out to Martin if you need to. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Martin. And uh, we will see you again soon. Thanks, Eris. Thank you so much for joining us in this chat. If you're enjoying listening to the Design Feeling Podcast, please do consider leaving an honest review on Apple Podcasts. It'll really help get this podcast out to more people. And please do share the podcast with a design thinking friend who could benefit from these conversations. See you next time.